Let me encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to the 19th chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, uh, the 19th chapter of Luke. And I want to begin reading there at verse 41, but just a brief word with respect to the background and the time frame and the life of our Lord here in verses 41 through 44 of Luke 19. Uh, The scene before us marks the last week of our Lord's public earthly ministry, which will shortly culminate in his death, burial, and resurrection from the dead, and his making his last public entrance into the city of Jerusalem, riding on the back of a colt, the foal of a donkey, and this an explicit fulfillment of Zechariah 9 and verse 9. And so we read verse 41, Now as he, speaking of our Lord, drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another, because you did not know the time of your visitation. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand forever. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let us pray. O Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence. We readily acknowledge for the attentive reader that even on the surface, these words of our Lord fill us with the sense of a fearful prospect of impending judgment and coming calamity that could have been avoided had the inhabitants of this city embraced the blessings that would have made for her peace. And we bow before you, O God, and to confess that unless you are pleased to come and enable us to go beyond the surface, coming to us in the presence and power of your Spirit, all our endeavors to mark and understand your word aright will prove fruitless and to no profit. And so we corporately cry to you, pleading in the language of the psalmist, teach us your statutes. Make us to understand the way of your precepts. And be pleased, we pray, to bind the powers of darkness that seek through our remaining corruption, ignorance, prejudice, and even distracting thoughts to leave us unmoved and unaffected by your word. And though, Lord, we plead for you to to bar and to block every influence that would keep your word from running and having free course in our hearts. Come then, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, upon these your dear people and preacher alike, that together we may all be conscious that we're not merely interacting with the thoughts and the musings of a mere mortal, but that we are having direct dealings with you yourself in this, the ministry of your word. 
We ask through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Now I want to draw your attention this evening and Lord willing next Lord's Day evening to this last phrase that we find in verse 44 where our Lord Jesus speaks and says, because you did not know the time of your visitation. But in order for us to catch the thrust of these sobering words of our Lord, please notice carefully with me the context in which our Lord spoke these words. They're spoken in the context of the tears of our Lord. And to my knowledge, there are but two instances in the gospel records. Of course, there is that one uh, very poignant, touching uh, verse in Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 7. But to my knowledge, there are only two instances in all of the gospel records where it is explicitly stated that our Lord Jesus Christ shed tears, that he wept. Now, that does not mean that these were the only times that our Lord Jesus wept. For Isaiah tells us that he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and no doubt many a place in Palestine could bear witness to the weeping of Christ, parts of the earth that were stained with the tears of the Savior. And yet we have the instance of him weeping beside the tomb of Lazarus, and this instance of his weeping over the impenitence and the unbelief of the city of Jerusalem. Now as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. And these tears were not tears of frustration, but they were tears of genuine love and compassion for the inhabitants of that place. And personally, I have no sympathy for those who try to protect the biblical doctrine of the peculiar and distinguishing love of God and of Christ to the elect, but who in so doing bleed a passage like this of all of its obvious and plain sense, namely that there is a kind of love and pity which Jesus Christ and the Father have to all men as well as that peculiar and distinguishing love of God to his own people, his elect. And anyone who denies either of those is going to have to blink at many portions of Scripture and end up having to twist many other portions of Scripture. The issue that should settle for us once and for all is the command of Christ that we find in the latter part of the fifth chapter of the gospel according to Matthew, where in the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord Jesus says to his disciples, love your enemies, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the just, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, our Lord is saying, be like my Father, be like God, who shows love and compassion even to his enemies. And so we see in our Lord here something of the general love and pity of God to all men. For the scripture tells us, he who has seen Christ has seen the Father. 
And it's of the very nature and character of God revealed in the person and work of our Lord Jesus. And so we behold the Son of God moved with genuine compassion and pity, not tears of frustration, mind you, but tears of forbearance and pity, and tears, you'll notice, provoked by two considerations. We see the first one in verse 42. Look at it. He wept over it, saying, This was what was in our Lord's mind as he wept. This is what broke his heart. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. His tears were provoked in the first place by all that Jerusalem had missed. He said, if you only knew the things that would have been your possession, but now they're hidden from your eyes. Tears provoked by the thought of all that they had missed of the privileges and blessings of God's peace and grace. And then in the second place, tears in the light of what they had incurred and brought upon themselves by way of judgment. Verse 43 and 44. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. You have then this twofold emphasis that can be seen Elsewhere in scripture in respect of a study of the biblical doctrine of hell. Namely that God's judgment comes with two senses. It comes with a primitive sense. He withholds certain things. Depart from me. That is the primitive sense of the judgment of God. And then there is the punitive, for example, into the everlasting Fire. And you have here the same thing as well, both the primitive and the punitive. It's a theme that runs all the way through Scripture. And as our Lord draws near to this city, as he contemplates what that city could have been, what it could have brought forth to the glory of God, a veritable heaven on earth in the light of all of its privileges, the great history, the great historical sweep of all of the privileges of the covenant people of God, the scriptures, the prophets, the sacrificial system, the tabernacle, the priesthood, all of those blessings. And when he contemplates what they should have meant when he, the fulfillment of all the types and shadows, appears on the scene and is able to say, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. As he thinks of what that city could have been, his heart is broken, broken at the thought of all they had missed. And then when he anticipates by the eye of prophetic vision what shall happen when the armies of Rome will encompass that city and wreak havoc and destruction and devastation upon it with a vengeance, his heart is even more deeply broken, not only at what they missed, but what they will incur 
in the judgment of God. Now then, the latter part of verse 44 gives us the reason for this. Why did they not enter into these privileges? Why will judgment come breaking upon their heads? Our Lord tells us, because, a word of reason, because you did not know the time of your visitation. The reason for this coming judgment was they failed to recognize their time of visitation. And as we think our way through the implications of that phrase in verse 44, I want to ask some questions and then seek to answer them. First of all then, what is a day or a time of visitation? And then I want to ask, and only I'll probably only have time to give the first answer to it in the second second question, how can we recognize a time of visitation? But let's consider uh, what is a day or a time of visitation? Well, in the case of Jerusalem and its inhabitants, the issue, I think, is very clear. For centuries, this people had been surrounded with unusual and peculiar privileges. You read about them as we've seen on these Lord's Day mornings as Pastor Greco has been taking us through Romans. For instance, Romans chapter 3 and verse 2, where Paul, after proving both Jew and Gentile alike under sin, says, what advantage then has the Jew? He says, much in every way chiefly because to them was committed the oracles of God, the word of God, the covenants, the adoption, all of these privileges they had in a peculiar way and everything that was characteristic of that nation found its fullest expression within the walls of the city of Jerusalem. It was there that the temple was built. It was there that the king reigned. It was there that you had, as it were, the center of the whole theocracy when God ruled over that nation and made known his mind and will through his servants, the king and the prophets, called the city of God, called the city of the great king. And so for Jerusalem... To have a day or a time of visitation meant that in the Lord Jesus Christ they saw the most wonderful miracles that had ever been wrought. Witnessed the most wonderful preaching and teaching that was ever heard. For they testified no man ever spoke like this man. Luke says in his own gospel account, chapter 4, that all bore witness to him and marveled at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. God spoke from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. So that for Jerusalem, her day or time of visitation was the unusual opportunities that came and presented themselves in the person and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then as a general principle, and I want to read from J.C. Ryle, and remember, J.C. Ryle is one of Pastor Greco's favorite commentators as well as mine. Charles Haddon Spurgeon spoke of Ryle in his own day, and he said he was the best man in the Church of England. 
But Ryle, commenting on this passage, says, A day of visitation. There seems to be no doubt that churches, nations, and even individuals are sometimes visited with special manifestations of God's presence. And their neglect of such manifestations is the turning point in their spiritual ruin. Why this should take place in some cases and not in others, we cannot tell, says Ryle. Facts, plain facts in plain history and biography prove that it is so. The last day will show the world that there were seasons in the lives of many who died in sin, when God drew very near to them, when conscience was peculiarly alive, when there seemed to be but a step between them and salvation. Those seasons, he says, will probably prove to have been what our Lord calls their day of visitation. And neglect of such seasons will probably be at last one of the heaviest charges against their souls. What is a day of visitation? Well, in the case of Jerusalem, it is clear. And I believe it is also clear as we think our way through the principles of Scripture and see them illustrated in the history of God's church. A day of visitation is a time in the life of an individual, a church, a community, and yes, a very nation when God brings unusual spiritual pressures and influences to bear upon the individual, the church, the community, and the nation, making real to them these very eternal realities. This was the case of those cities of which our Lord speaks in Matthew chapter 11. Why was their judgment so heavy? Matthew 11 verses 1 through 24. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Why? Because you had a time. Of visitation. I sent my servants to you. I performed most of my mighty miracles in your midst. I preached to you the truth, not in type and shadow, but in clear pronouncement. And you witnessed all of that, only to turn away from all of it in impenitence and unbelief. Woe to you, twill be more tolerable for Tyre and Sodom and Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. Their time of visitation came and it went, leaving them in a course slated for judgment. Such was the case for Herod when, when John the Baptist preached the truth to him but loving his lust and his paramour more than the truth that John preached. He was willing to have the Baptist head severed at the highest pitch of his sins and sanity. Such was the case when Felix trembled under the spirit-anointed preaching of the Apostle Paul, times when the realities of heavenly issues were brought into very sharp focus and when men willfully turned their backs upon them, then the sobering words of Proverbs chapter 1 come to pass. And I know a few words more terrifying than these. Proverbs 1, listen to these verses beginning at verse 24. Because I have called 
and you refused. I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all of my counsel and would have none of my rebuke, I will also laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm and your destruction comes like a whirlwind, when the stress and anguish come upon you, then they will call upon me and I'll be waiting there, God says, like the tire in the trunk of last resort. Oh no, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because, again, a word of reason, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despised my every rebuke. What is a day of visitation? My friend, it is this. It is that day when God draws near to you with unusual spiritual pressures and influences and brings them to bear upon your soul, upon your conscience. And when men fail to recognize it, it is to seal themselves up to this terrible judgment that Israel, Jerusalem experienced, that Herod experienced, that Felix Felix experienced, and which we read about in Proverbs chapter 1. Now let me say by word of caution and qualification, this is not to say that Christ was frustrated or defeated. I'm not saying that. And I have not relinquished my firm conviction of the teaching of a passage like John 17, where the same Christ who weeps over the city of Jerusalem says, Father, I have finished the work you gave me to do. Those whom you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost. Our Lord Jesus was not frustrated. You see, some will take a text like this one here in Luke 19 and say, Aha! You see there, Jesus weeps. He wouldn't say, he, he wouldn't, he wanted to save them, but they wouldn't use their free will to respond. Jesus Christ has set his heart to save everybody, but he can't save anybody unless they choose him. Therefore, and then they begin to draw all kinds of false conclusions. Don't do that. You're not warranted in doing that. Others will look at the passage like John 17 and say, well, you see, Jesus said, I'm not frustrated. He gave eternal life to everyone whom he really desired to give eternal life. Therefore, it cannot mean that he wept tears of compassion and pity over the city of Jerusalem. They must have been tears for something else. And then you've got to explain away a passage like this one in Luke chapter 19. When will we learn just to take the Bible in its plain and obvious sense? Don't try to be an explainer. Just be a believer and a proclaimer. This is not to say that Christ was frustrated. And I'm not saying in the second place that there are only certain times when invitations are valid and claimable. No, the scripture tells us, as I read for our call to worship tonight, in an acceptable time, 
I have heard you. And in the day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The writer of Hebrews says, Today, if you'll hear his voice. And I am not saying then that there are only certain times when gospel invitations are valid for folk to come to Christ. I'm not saying that. Nor am I saying that we here at Christ Church are in such a time of visitation. But I will say this. When a minister of the gospel senses in the ministry of the word an unusual penetration, an unusual unction, an unusual enlargement of his own heart, then God is telling us something. Now, such a thing as a day or a time of visitation as seen in the history of Jerusalem, the nation of Israel, and particularly the city of Jerusalem, if we find this concept throughout the scriptures and confirmed in the subsequent history of the church, then the next question is the most practical one, and I'm going to offer four answers to this question. I'll only be able to give the one tonight, and then we'll pick it up here next Lord's Day evening. But that question is this, how may we recognize a day or a time of visitation, either individually, corporately, as a church or a nation? How can we recognize such a time or season? For the curse you see that came upon the city of Jerusalem was that she failed to recognize her time of visitation because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus says, it came, it went, and you never knew it. What a sobering reality. May God help us to know what the time is. Very briefly then, answering in the first place, what is, how may we recognize the time of God's visitation? Let me give you the first answer to that question. And here it is. When the word comes, when the word of God comes with unusual power, that is a time of God's visitation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 In verse 2, Paul writes there, he says, For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my preaching, he says, were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. The Apostle Paul says elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 20, for the kingdom of God is not in word, but in power. And when the word of God comes with unusual power, the kingdom of God is drawing nigh. God is giving us a time of visitation. When we find that our ears are unusually sensitive to that word. And when that word comes with a life-giving quality that is more than normal, more than usual, this is a time of God's visitation. For you'll notice what was the mark of both the ministries of the Baptist and of Jesus? Anointed preaching. John the Baptist filled with the Holy Ghost from his mother's womb and he appears on the scene suddenly in the wilderness of Judea and there was such power attending this man's preaching that multitudes 
from Jerusalem and Judea and all the region surrounding the Jordan flocked to hear him. He had no advance man. He had no committee planning two or three years in advance this great campaign convincing all of the civic officials to cooperate. All of this machinery together that would get the average modern day evangelist a crowd without a single wattage of sheer Holy Ghost power. And from the standpoint of pure business principles that work in the realm of business, you don't need the Holy Ghost for a day of visitation. You see, John had none of that. And as we have been listening to Pastor Wagner preach through the Gospel of Mark, I've been struck with this peculiar feature of our Lord. He simply enters a house. And what happens? Mark 2, verse 1. And it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. Why? Because he preached with such power. He ministered with such unique power that people around our Lord were drawn into the orbit of that influence. When the word comes with unusual power, this is a time of God's visitation. And I confess to you that Throughout my years of ministry, this, is, this has been a mystery to me as a preacher. There have been times in my own experience when as far as I know as Christ's servant, I haven't been walking any more or less carefully before God. I'm not any more or less prayerful in my preparation. Not any more or less dependent upon God when I step into a pulpit. But then when you open your mouth, perhaps you've moved through the introduction and you've done the review if you're preaching through a series. And then something happens. Something happens. You find that your own mind is enlarged and your spirit is stretched. Your tongue is loosed. And then you sense that something settles in upon the congregation. And there's a sense that everyone... They're not only giving you eyes and ears, but giving you their hearts as well. And there's this peculiar sense that something more than a mere mortal speaking is taking place. God is there in that place. God is happening. Other times, never comes. Never comes. I can't explain it. The ways of the Spirit, Jesus said, are what? They're like the wind. They're like the wind. You don't control the wind, and I certainly don't control it, but we who minister God's word, we can tell when God sends a little our way. You know, when I was 17 years old and I began to preach and had no business preaching at that time, I, I, was, I was asked to go and preach at an all-black church. And uh, I walked in the front door, and one of the deacons there met me and put his hands on my shoulder and Looked at me eyeball to eyeball. And he looked at me and he smiled. He said, is you scared? (laughs) Well, I was scared. But I wasn't going to tell him. (laughs) But uh, I had the opportunity to talk to the black pastor there at that church. And he was talking about the whole thing of unction. And uh, I said, do you understand what the Bible means when it speaks about unction? And his response was classic. He says, I don't knows what it is, but I knows what it ain't. 
And I know what it ain't too, but when God is pleased to grant such unction, when the word grips the mind and the heart and the affections, that's a time, make no mistake, of God's visitation. Surely some of you know this by experience of which I'm speaking. You experienced this perhaps in your own conversion. Others of you came gradually to faith in Jesus Christ. Both experiences are valid. Same Bible, no great preacher in the pulpit, but then suddenly in the normal course of the ministry of the Word, something happens that only God Himself can initiate. That, my friend, is a time of God's visitation. We'll look at the rest of these next Lord's Day. But dear people, this is a sobering reality. To think that God is dealing with precious souls and for them to turn away from it. God, help us not to do so. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your goodness and grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And those of us who know something of that which our Lord speaks here tonight, we're grateful, O oh God, that you came to us in the ministry of the Word powerfully, bringing unusual spiritual pressures and influences to bear to draw us savingly unto yourself. O oh Lord, do your work in all of our hearts again tonight. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.